So I was on a retreat for about a month, and I heard that Sylvia gave you updates <laughs> in the last month uh, because I was uh, working with her. I met with her every two days for a month. We had to be disciplined to avoid chit-chat. <laughs> and uh, the, the main practice that I did inspired me for today and for the next weeks, which was the main practice I did for the whole month, was doing the practice of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. More or less a week each. That are, we call the four Brahma-vihara, or the four uh, divine abodes. Vihara is the word for a house, and Brahma is the name of the king of the gods. And so these are said to be states that are very wonderful and blissful, the states of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity that are indeed like being gods or goddesses. When we enter into those states, we're in a kind of divine abode, uh, especially when it gets stabilized and we hang out in it for a sustained period. And so I was uh, working with these practices in a formal way, using the phrases, uh, much like we did this morning. And you may recall that in January, we worked with loving-kindness practice for three weeks and worked with those phrases. So I thought that it would be appropriate to continue now and start with compassion practice, the second of the Brahma-vihara, having done loving-kindness for a period of time. And my original thought, since I had three weeks in a row, was to do compassion, joy, and equanimity. And I think that's a little rushed. (laughs) I had that thought in the middle of the sitting. So I said, I'm going to... I'm going to, I think I'm going to extend it. Maybe I'm going to talk with Sylvia tomorrow night. And maybe I'll do three weeks and maybe she can continue with this as well. She'll, she'll, we'll see. But I think I want to continue with uh, compassion uh, next week. And what I'll urge us to do, those who are interested, would be to take a focus on compassion practice for the next week. Uh, it could be both the formal practice of saying the phrases and doing that, just do it, you can do it as much as you want. I mean, I was doing it 16 hours, 18 hours a day, but you can do it 10 minutes (laughs) or 15 minutes or do it, you know, do it while you're driving. It's a big thing. Compassion practice on the highway. Um, But you can also do the, you can also not only do the formal practice, but express compassion in other ways, just in the in a myriad of uh, everyday ways. It could be listening with compassion to a friend who's in distress. It could be actively responding, visiting someone who's in distress. Uh, It could be taking care of oneself, expressing compassion to oneself in some way. That could be, again, both using formal practice, but it also could be simply being kind to oneself in some way. For some of us, it could mean, I don't know, having chocolate later in the day. One of the ancient practices done (laughs) by many for a long time. (laughs) It could be responding in some way to the suffering of the world by 
saying that I want to make time in my life to contribute to some response to the world and, and do that regularly. So I think our compassion practice goes in all of those directions. So I'll invite us to think more actively. It could mean to uh, watch the news for half an hour as a kind of compassion practice. That's advanced. For some of us, as you're saying, it might mean to not watch the news if, if you're a news junkie and you get, in, you get into, oh my God, oh my God, more bad news. But it could be to watch um, a film on something difficult in the world and just to go into that territory. You know, it's much like uh, on this handout, I have a very inspiring phrase from the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh says this as a, as a guideline. It's on, in the uh, third uh, listing in the, in the, on the second page uh, at the bottom. Do not avoid contact with suffering or close your eyes before suffering. Do not lose awareness of the existence of suffering in the life of the world. Find ways to be with those who are suffering by all means, including personal contact and visits, images, sound. By such means, awaken yourself and others to the reality of suffering in the world. So this is a practice that we can do. And for some of us, if we are particularly in a difficult time personally, the compassion may especially express itself as compassion for oneself. So we don't have to force ourselves at the inappropriate time to take on more suffering. I want to be clear about that. But sometimes the compassion practice is in relationship to what we're experiencing. So I'd like to uh, talk about compassion some as a way of framing it and orienting our, uh, many of us for what I hope is a chance to focus some on developing compassion further. It really is a kind of lifetime work, as we know. Uh, there's a beautiful story that I heard from Houston Smith, who has been a mentor to me. One, some of you know a great, great man who's close to 90 now, who uh, is one of the great scholars and teachers of uh, uh, religion, and particularly of the mystical dimensions of religion cross-culturally. And he told me a story, or he told a group that, a story that has really touched me. He was... He was uh, with um, Aldous Huxley, a great writer, uh, who died, I believe, in 1963. And uh, near the end of his life, Houston Smith spent some time with him. uh, And he talked about the importance of compassion and kindness. And he said it this way. You know, it's embarrassing after all these years. I'm asked so often about the most profound questions. My answer is, try to be a little kinder. A great Tibetan teacher uh, said something very similar. Uh, There's a very beautiful book called The Words of My Perfect Teacher by Patrul Rinpoche, who lived in the 19th century in Tibet. He said it this way. He said, uh, 
He was actually quoting from uh, another text. He said, or the text said, let those who desire to be like Buddha not train in many dharmas, but only one. Don't do a lot of spiritual practices. Just train in one thing. Which one? Great compassion. Those with great compassion possess all the Buddha's teachings as if it were in the palm of their hand. So compassion is taught in a number of different ways. It's taught uh, partly as one of the two wings of the Dharma. Many of you know it's taught as something to focus on, much as in that, that text that we are, sometimes say we, we are like the bird that has two wings, that flies with the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion. And so sometimes when practice is simplified, it's, say, it's said, train in wisdom and train in compassion. Those are the two main emphases. And the Buddha himself was said to be like the doctor, the compassionate one, the one who serves those who are suffering. So compassion was right at the center of things. It's also taught not just as a general attitude and approach, but also as a formal meditation practice. And I think we'll be exploring both dimensions, both the general development of compassion in all these myriad ways that that we were just exploring and mentioning, all the different ways we can express compassion. We can also develop it as a formal meditation practice that we do on the cushion and that we bring into daily life. Like loving-kindness, it can be the repetition of a phrase, uh, one of the phrases on that sheet that we practiced at the end of the sitting. And here, we would call this one of the four Brahma-vihara, one of the four divine abodes, which are loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, joy especially in the joy of others. And these are, in a sense, taken to be uh, expressions of our birthright and expressions of who we are most deeply, that we train. In other words, this is a training where we don't so much train to add new techniques and skills and and, uh, competences and so forth, we actually train to be more deeply ourselves. Ultimately, it's much easier. don't have to add all sorts of bells and whistles. Actually, mostly we have to get rid of bells and whistles right, or, or let go of them. And so the, the, these four abodes are really understood as expressions of our deeper nature that we touch at times and that we know at times, particularly when we feel we've touched life uh, more deeply, we can feel that sense of love or compassion or joy or the uh, kind of wise balance that is equanimity, wise balance with ups and downs and so forth. And what I love particularly is that they're all taught together. To me, it's a very subtle teaching, a very subtle and nuanced teaching. It's basically saying that the wise heart has all of these dimensions. 
And so even though we train in these separately, one of the things that I've found doing a month of this practice, one of the most clear insights coming from a month there was how these all interpenetrate each other and how if we actually have mature love, it's going to have the elements of compassion and joy and equanimity. If we have mature compassion, it's going to have qualities of joy. It's not going to just be grimly focused on being with the suffering. It's actually going to have the qualities of joy. And someone who works, let's say, in the helping professions or someone who works with suffering a lot needs to have that quality of joy or there'll be burnout. So mature compassion has joy, also has equanimity, which is hard. This is hard training. How, if you're with suffering a lot, how can you have a sense of balance? It's not, again, it's important to remember that all of these Brahma-vihara practices are not production practices where we demand of ourselves to be a certain way. You, Donald, be compassionate right now, or at least in the next ten minutes. Do it. Oh, I'm not compassionate. Bad Donald. (laughs) You know, our minds can go in that direction. But it's really that we're, in a sense, with all of these practices, we're not so much demanding that we are a certain way, but we're saying, I want to incline in this direction. I want to set the intention to move in that direction. And the actual practice is, like loving-kindness or compassion, it's like we're repeating to ourselves almost like uh, a conviction. May I be free of suffering and the roots of suffering. May you be free. We're repeating an intention And in a sense, with all these practices, we uh, say the phrases, and in a sense, we invite the heart to open. I like to think of it like a kind of knocking on the door of the heart, but we don't barge in, or we don't say, open up this door immediately, heart open. And we might find ourselves doing that. But that's a very important point for all these practices, because when we do the practices, we may not find ourselves at all feeling at all compassionate or loving, yet we still keep doing it. Because in the long run, we're really, as it were, inviting our deeper nature to come out. So in the long run, the odds are fixed, we might say, because this is our nature. But we, along the way, it's, it's, it's ups and downs, and we might be doing compassion practice and feeling very non-compassionate, and that's okay. That's ordinary. That's why it's a practice and a training rather than a a demand that we put on ourselves. And so these four abodes are what uh, I want to be exploring in the next weeks, uh, focusing here on compassion and seeing, as you might see, that kind of interpenetration. It was, again, one of the most uh, helpful insights was to really feel that more strongly. I would be doing compassion and I'd be taken into joy, or I'd be taken in a moment. I'd be uh, uh, taken into one of the others. And I think because they all need each other. To, for example, to really sustain compassion, we have to have, as I mentioned, that quality of joy. We also have to have the quality of equanimity, which expresses wisdom. I might be really wanting this person not to suffer. The wisdom tells me some of why there is suffering and tells me that there are factors that are out of my control. And yet I still come with compassion. It's a little bit paradoxical, 
the way these four combine, that we work both with compassion and with joy and with wisdom and love, ultimately at the same time. So this is one of the benefits. And to me, again, it's a very beautiful teaching that these all four need to be there together, ultimately. The practice of these Brahma-vihara, of these divine abodes, was something that the Buddha practiced all the time. Even though he was, the reports go, fully enlightened, he still spent his day, apparently, saying these phrases, (laughs) a good part of the day. You know, that he actually, he said when he was walking here and there, he would ground himself, he would be expressing these four abodes. I wanted to just read you a short text on this. This is, this is uh, the Buddha talking about just how he proceeded on a daily basis. He said, I'm coming to a certain village. Setting mindfulness in front of me, I abide suffusing one quarter of the world with a heart possessed of loving kindness. One quarter of the world possessed uh, with a heart possessed of compassion. One quarter of the world uh, with a heart possessed of uh, joy and so forth and with equanimity. He said, he then talks about using these different phrases and he says, the whole world I suffuse with a heart grown great with loving kindness, free of enmity and untroubled. Likewise with a heart possessed of compassion. Likewise Likewise, with a heart possessed with joy and gladness. Likewise, possessed with equanimity. If I walk up and down, my walking is sublime. And that's the word that actually is the same word as the divine abodes. It's translated here as sublime. If I walk up and down, my walking is sublime. My standing, my sitting is sublime. This is what I mean when I talk about these four abodes as a sublime abiding place. So he would be doing these practices. And I'm sure he occasionally had ups and downs. (laughs) So it's good to remember. And so when we look at compassion more particularly, I think it's helpful to remember it in that larger framework. So some of you may want to do some of the loving-kindness practice as well uh, at times. In the etymology in the Asian language of Pali and Sanskrit, the word that we use, that we translate as compassion, is karuna, K-A-R-U-N-A. And literally it means the quivering of the heart when there is suffering. And it's said that these four abodes are actually really, we might say, the four stations of the heart dependent on the conditions changing. Loving-kindness is the open, kind heart that we have simply when nothing special is happening. Okay? Just loving-kindness. Hi. Wishing well. Friendly. Kind. Related to the words, loving, the word for loving-kindness, metta, etymologically is related to the word for friend. So we could also, we, don't, we might say instead of loving-kindness, we might say friendliness or deep friendliness. It's really that kind of connotation. So that's the basic attitude. We approach our everyday life increasingly with that spirit of kindness or uh, friendliness. 
again, as a training, not to mean we have to be all that way all the time, or not, not, to, uh, uh, not to think that we shouldn't have uh, moments when we don't feel that way. In fact, a lot of these practices, as we've sometimes mentioned, sometimes have the quality of what is, we call purification, meaning that when we do the practice, they sometimes bring out the opposite. Just remember that. <laughs> so, <'cause> it, <laughs> so whatever happens is okay. You're very compassionate, fine. You're grumpy and so forth, fine. Part of the practice. It's kind of like we have the possibilities covered here. Which means this is something I learned from uh, when, I, when I was uh, doing some further training to be a teacher. I sat in with Sylvia doing her interviews at retreats for like a few years. It was really a wonderful training. And one of the things she told me is that the main thing I really teach is that if you're practicing, you can't do it wrong. It's a very friendly attitude. (laughs) And so the the important thing is that we're just having that intention. So, and so loving-kindness is the the heart that just meets life without anything special happening. When we're meeting life and there's distress or suffering, that same heart uh, turns into compassion. So compassion is not different from loving-kindness. It's what loving-kindness becomes when it encounters difficulty, distress, pain, suffering. Likewise, when that open heart finds beauty for people who are happy, or joyful, or doing well, it becomes joyful. It becomes that uh, mudita, M-U-D-I-T-A, the quality of the heart that rejoices in the joy of others and rejoices in one's own well-being as well. Now, we'll talk about that probably in two weeks in, in more detail. And then lastly, the heart has also that quality of wisdom, so it, it has that anchor, or the, uh, maybe better said, the rudder of uh, equanimity. So that natural heart has that quality of balance. Uh, often when there's nothing uh, particular happening, it will have that quality of a kindness, but also a quality of understanding. And that's really this crucial factor, because the first three, we might say in using normal English, are qualities of the heart. And the equanimity is more the quality, we might say, of the mind or of wisdom. And, and they have to go together. We would say, in using colloquial, we would say, this is a formula for the integration of head and heart, or of the mind and the heart, whatever language we use. And in, in the Asian cultures, those two, the head and the heart, weren't distinguished in the same way. Most of the Asian words, as some of you know, uh, the word is really about the mind and the heart being the same thing. You know, when one would ask, where is your heart, most people would, or where is your mind, they would, they would press their heart in those cultures. And it's not saying that's right or wrong, but it's, 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 there is an integrated sense of mind and heart there. So compassion is simply the quivering of the heart when there is suffering. And it's taken to be a very natural response that we give when we are not fearful or stressed or confused. It's taken that the very natural expression of the heart 
is compassion. The trouble is, of course, that we do get stressed and confused and startled and fearful. So it's taken that compassion is the natural response when the conditions are not difficult or not such that the heart gets closed. It's taken to be very, very natural quality, which gives tremendous potential for the application of compassion in the world. Because it really is the case that this is our natural state, and even people who may be very um, solidified in their uh, meanness or cruelty, even they can be touched. That, for example, we think of the practice of nonviolence as developed by Gandhi and King was actually to, for the nonviolent demonstrator, think of the civil rights movements in the early 60s, to submit to arrest and to submit even to, if you remember some of the films, some of the police dogs or the hoses and so forth. And the idea was, developed by Gandhi and King, was that the willingness to embrace undeserved suffering can even open up the heart of the oppressor. And the, the, the basis for that is this understanding of compassion. There's this very uh, powerful story I want to share with you that is a true story that took place, uh, I think, around uh, 1989. And I learned about this reading a book by Michael Nagler on the hist- on, on the approach to nonviolence. Michael Nagler is a friend who uh, was the founder of peace and conflict studies at the University of California, Berkeley. In fact, probably some of you probably studied with him. Did anyone study with Michael Nagler? Okay. Okay. I think his, his <coughs> complete classes on the history of nonviolence are available on the web at webcast at berkeley.edu. So we're in, the, we're in the period of time when websites are given out in the middle of Dharma talks. <laughs> so, uh, in any case, uh, here's th- this story which I learned reading this book. A uh, very beautiful book. I think it's called something else now. I think he retitled it. It was originally called Is There No Other Way? The Search for a Nonviolent Future. I think it maybe is called The Search for a Nonviolent Future, but it's a very nice book. This is a story of Karen Ridd and the way that uh, the heart can open even in those who are cruel. In 1989, Karen Ridd from Canada and four other international volunteers were working with a group called Peace Brigades International, PBI, when they were suddenly arrested by Guatemalan military. Three of the five were Spanish nationals, and they were promptly deported from Guatemala, leaving Karen, who was Canadian, and her friend uh, Marcela Rodriguez, who was from from Colombia, to face whatever was coming. Fortunately, Karen had time to call the Canadian Council and alert another PBI volunteer who happened to call in at the right moment. This was some comfort, as was the civility at first of the soldiers, but no one from the team had 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 to face arrest before. And from another room, Marcella heard the soldiers describing them as terrorists from the Episcopal Church. <laughs> they, were, they, were, um, they were following the practice of what would sometimes be called nonviolent accompaniment, 
In other words, they were trying to give protection to certain people by having the international group be in that area. And it's actually a pretty successful program over the years. I have known several people who've done that. So these, they were described as terrorists from the Episcopal Church. <laughs> Their spirits did not improve when the two women, along with other detainees, were, were loaded onto a truck, taken to an army barracks, blindfolded, and subjected to five hours interrogation about their alleged connection with the guerrilla movement FMLN, while sounds of torture and the sobbing of victims came from nearby rooms. Karen knew that PBI would quickly alert their, their worldwide network about the arrest, but she also knew that time was short. There was no telling what would happen in that barracks if someone didn't get them out before nightfall. PBI had in fact activated its worldwide network and before long hundreds of people were sending faxes uh, to the Canadian and Colombian embassies, calling and sending email messages to their representatives to urge uh, Karen and Marcella's immediate release. All this got no response at all from the Colombian embassy, but Canada brought official pressure on the Guatemalan government no doubt hinting that their extensive trade relations with Guatemala um, could be compromised if Karen were not ordered uh, released immediately. Whether it was that, uh, whatever it was that got uh, through to whomever was in charge, Karen found herself walking across the barrack grounds towards a waiting embassy official a few hours later, a free woman. But when the soldiers removed her blindfold, uh, inside the barracks, she had caught a glimpse of, of uh, Marcella. Face to the wall, a perfect image, she said later, of dehumanization. Glad as Karen was to be alive, something tugged at her. Feeling terrible, she made excuses to the exasperated Canadian embassy official who had come all the way from Guatemala Silly to get her. She turned and walked back into the barracks. Not knowing what would happen to her in there, but knowing that it could not be worse than leaving a friend. The soldiers were startled and almost as exasperated. <laughs> they handcuffed her again. In the next room, a soldier banged Marcella's head into the wall and said that some white bitch was stupid enough to walk back in there. And now you're going to get the treatment a terrorist deserves. No more Mr. Nice Guy. But Karen's gesture was having a strange effect on the men. They talked to Karen despite themselves, and she tried to explain why she had returned. You know what it's like to be separated from a compañero. And that got to them. They released Karen and Marcella. And the two women uh, walked out together under the stars, hand in hand. So, so they were struggling to keep it together. <laughs> so that's the basis, really, sort of in the human heart that the compassion practice works with. Because it's ultimately, even in those soldiers, 
something was able to get to them, even though their hearts were hardened, surely they weren't uh, impermeable. So maybe I'll just say a few more words and in terms of how we work with that practice here. In English, the word compassion relates particularly to suffering. And the, the meaning of suffering is particularly in the coming from the Latin, the etymology is has to do with uh, two roots, uh, sub, S-U-B, and ferre. A sub means to be under, like a submarine. And ferre means to carry or bear a load. So it's, it's basically to be under a load, you know, under a difficult load. And what's really the root of compassion is the fact that we're willing to be with suffering. We're willing especially to be with what's painful. And that goes against our conditioning. So when we do compassion practice, we're going against our, our normal conditioning. And it's good to remember that because there can be resistance to doing the compassion practice. Our normal conditioning is to attempt to avoid pain and cultivate pleasure. And we tend to uh, react to pain and try to get rid of it. What the core teachings that we follow here suggest is that that actually increases suffering. That there's something that we have to, in a sense, train for, which is to be able to be present with, with suffering and with, and, and with what's painful. In fact, that distinction, which I mentioned in the guided meditation, that distinction between pain and suffering, I think, is really crucial for working with compassion practice and something that we've explored here these Wednesdays many, many times. And that, for me, is best expressed in that uh, wonderful teaching called the two arrows, or sometimes translated the two darts, which is this beautiful teaching that, in which I think the Buddha very clearly distinguishes between pain and suffering, and basically says pain is not the problem. It's rather our reaction to pain that's the problem. And that's what we can call suffering. In other words, we all are given a certain amount of pain. Pain is a natural part of life. Um, there's, a, there's a famous, let me see, there's a famous um, lecture by the great Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi in which he talked, he basically made this point in a humorous way. He said, he, he said to his gr- assembled group of students, the difficulties you are now having, and he waited a long time, the difficulties you are now having, you will have for the rest of your life. <laughs> you could have, I mean, <laughs> there's something, you know, the <laughs> people were waiting for the difficulties you're now having. We do Zen practice, then all go away, and you'll be lofted onto this cloud. They said, the difficulty you're now having, suspense building, you will have for the rest of your life. So... so um, there are, there's a certain amount of pain that we have in our, in our lives. And we know what that is. And the teaching is that the real compassion and wisdom is how to be with that in a gracious way, in a wise way, in a compassionate way. So we have a certain amount of pain. We have a certain amount of physical pain. 
comes with being alive, certain amount of emotional and mental pain, certain amount of injustice or lack of fairness, which is mm, there in our lives. You know, we will eventually uh, lose all that's dear to us. You know, and we will eventually die. And so there is that quality of pain as a given. But the Buddha asked this question, how does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? He said, the non-practitioner, like the practitioner, has that quality of pain. He said, that's likened to be shot by an arrow. We all are shot by the arrow and there's pain in our lives. We are shot. He called this the first arrow. He said, the non-practitioner, because of the first arrow, shoots a second arrow. We might say, shoots that second arrow at oneself or others, ignorantly thinking that that will get rid of the pain. So, uh, when I have physical discomfort, I tend to tense. And there's a very large amount of tension, according to doctors, that is basically not being able just to somehow be present with the pain. And so, and doctors that I've talked to have said that by far the majority of the pain that patients experience is not the original pain, but the reaction to the original pain. Maybe as much as 80% of the pain is, is the tensing, the reaction. Of course, we know probably more clearly how that works emotionally. Right? We have something difficult happen and the mind and the heart just go off somewhere for three hours or three months or three years. And that is like shooting a second arrow. The aim of practice, he said, is to learn how to be present with the pain so that we don't suffer. In other words, that we don't shoot the second arrow so much. And that's why we practice. And so part of it means to be able to be present, to learn better to be present with what's difficult, with what's painful, with others suffering with our own. And that's what our compassion practice builds on. That's what we, in a sense, do with compassion practice. We enter willingly into what's difficult as a kind of training of the heart. And it's also why the other three divine abodes are so important, because it's very easy to see how we would become imbalanced doing that. And yet, if we don't do that, we'll be driven by fear of pain, as we are to some extent. And so the compassion practice and using those phrases gives one way of developing that compassion. We can work with the formal practice of the phrases. Typically we start with a situation where the pain is most uh, accessible. When I was doing the practice at the beginning of every session, I would sometimes call forth images of pain or suffering in the world as a way of reminding myself of pain. Because when you're up there in the retreat center, people are cooking good meals for you, nice and warm bed and so forth. Sometimes if one's not suffering oneself, it's sometimes hard to remember. But this compassion practice at certain point is to deliberately go into that territory. Again, not for everyone at every time. If we're suffering ourselves, a compassion practice for ourselves. So we can do the formal practices and we can do the, a number of different ways we can act to um, bring compassion out into the world. I think I will stop here. There's a lot more that I 
could say, which I think I will say for next time, but I think that is a start for exploring compassion practice and really hoping to give some energy and some uh, vision. Uh, Ruth, you can keep it going till, you know, until the end. Uh, to give some uh, energy and some, maybe some uh, inspiration for uh, bringing this out into our daily lives. So I think I'll stop here and invite any questions or discussion. But why don't we just take 30 seconds or a minute just to sit quietly and then we'll have some questions. Please, and I, I forgot I have to also introduce Kuan Yin at some point. Okay. Please, yeah. Yeah, I'm having, I'm having a hard time. Um, I'm having a hard time with the concept. You know, we all have suffering in our lives, and and some, you know, some more than others. And I'm having a hard time um, with thinking about why I would intentionally seek out suffering other than that which comes its way in my life naturally, yeah. or of my lo- or the life of my loved ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. Remind me of your name? Debbie. Debbie. Everyone, Debbie's question was, why should we intentionally bring more pain into our lives? Uh, and I, I want to keep that distinction between pain and suffering. Uh, with suffering being the reaction. Again, this is, we use the, the, the word suffering in all sorts of ways. It's used often as a synonym for pain. And I think that confuses the point that's really crucial. When the Buddha talks about the end of suffering, which he does talk about, the transformation of suffering, he's not talking about the end of pain. Because pain comes with being a human being. So I think that's, that's for me, a very important point. And... So why to uh, why um, go out looking for more trouble? <laughs> you know, that's a great question, and I think there are a few ways to respond to that, and might might be something we could also talk about together. That um, for one thing, I think there is a personal assessment of where one is oneself. What does one have the capacity to take on more? And it may be that one doesn't, that one has quite enough so that you don't need to go looking for more, that there's quite enough to to handle just to be with your own um, immediate circle, let's say, and and your your own pain. The... Um, compassion practice is in, I think maybe, maybe I said it a little bit misleadingly, I think the <coughs> compassion practice is to a large extent not so, much, um, not so much trying to take on more pain, but it's actually trying to see the pain that's actually there. So that's a, that's a big part of it. It's, so it's actually might be to actually, if when one does the practice with oneself or with one's loved ones, it's not so much that you're making up more pain or bringing more pain. It's actually that you're, 
using a practice to looking at the pain that's already there, which we might not want to look at. So in that sense, it's not taking on more, but it's being skillful with what, with what is there, knowing that we often want to hide from our own pain or hide the pain of family members or people close to us, or we don't want to go there. I'm not saying you do that, but um, uh, we often do that. So some of the compassion practice is just really being willing to open to what's right there anyway. And some, that's what we do in meditation. We, we, don't, uh, we may experience more pain, but it's, um, you know, like when we sit in meditation and we sit with, let's say, uh, sadness rather than go to the refrigerator, that's, uh, that's a skillful way of working with what's already there. So that's, that's, one, that's one point. Some of it is also being willing to take on more pain when the time is right. And we can understand that in a few different ways. It, it partly can be understood to take on that role of being a helper or a healer. In the Buddhist tradition, we talk about a bodhisattva, who basically to be of service and to see, do I have the capacity to take on more? It's also the fact that um, a large amount of the suffering in our society is hidden or not really um, visible, or it's kept in ghettos, or it's kept segregated, or, or we don't learn about certain suffering because the news doesn't report it, such as how the suffering of U.S. soldiers in Iraq or Afghanistan, right? Can't broadcast anything about the funerals until, I guess, that got changed, right? It got changed with this administration. So that's a deliberate uh, camouflaging. And so... Um, so it, I think it's, I'm giving, realize I'm giving a long answer, but it's something that uh, if one has the capacity to enter into others' suffering, it's a way of serving and really actually helping others. But that one needs that quality of balance to be able to do it well. Does that help a little? So it's kind of two points. One is that we're looking at what's there. We're not bringing anything new in, but we're looking at what's actually there more skillfully. And second is that we can voluntarily choose to go into more. And I think many of us do that when we enter helping professions, or maybe even to have a family is to do that, <coughs> in a certain sense. <laughs> okay, please. So, yeah, it's a great question, though. Anyone have a reflection on that or another comment or question? Please. Well, I have a question that came out of that one. Yeah. Um, for me, it's easier to open to the suffering of others who are not closely related yeah. to me than it is yeah. with the people that I most want to open up to. Yeah. Yeah. Because I guess I it's hard for me to keep that distinction between the pain it is for me to see their suffering yeah. and not shooting myself the second time. Yeah. Yeah. So <coughs> what could you say about that? Um yeah, that's, that's true. The question was about the fact that it's sometimes easier to open to the suffering of people we don't know so well, or let's say it could be professionally. Because well, you're, you're, you're a therapist, right? Yeah, that's right. If I can, is it okay to say that? Okay. <laughs> Publicly. <laughs> okay, Could I, I just remembered. Yeah. That, that, uh, that, and that's easier than opening to the suffering of those closest to one. So, 
So that, that's something very interesting maybe for you to look at more. It's not hard to imagine, that, as you were saying, that it could be because it triggers, maybe it triggers your own suffering more easily, triggers your own pain and the shooting of the second arrow and so forth more, more easily. And I think that's quite natural. So it, in the compassion practice, you can work directly with the people close to you in this. I think when we do it in this meditative way, it actually is, um, it's a little bit removed from the actual being present with the person. So you could think of it as a training. So the, you know, the other answer that I was going to give to was Debbie, right? Was, was that partly we do this as a training. We take on a little bit more. Just like when we sit and meditate, we are taking on a certain amount of pain just by meditating. But we're doing it because we have a sense that it actually is a training. It's like, as is said in the locker room, what? No pain, no gain. <laughs> um, that was, uh, I, th- I think there's some truth to that, right? You know, or it's like Achan Cha, Jack Kornfield's teacher said, there are two kinds of pain or two kinds of suffering. There's the kind that, lead, that just is in a cycle where suffering leads to further suffering. And there's a kind of suffering one takes on that leads to the transformation of suffering. He says we encourage the second kind. But there is a certain amount of pain that we take on here. This isn't all just fun and games and bliss. I thought that when I first started meditating. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you just on that last comment yeah. about um, meaningful suffering. Yeah. But meaningful suffering is an understanding that there's a transformative element. Yeah. So the question is really of uh, how does the concept of meaningful suffering link to that distinction, as it were, between two types of suffering. And again, I think it's helpful to keep that distinction between pain and suffering in mind. Because really, we could say that it's meaningful pain and perhaps to some extent meaningful suffering that we take on. Uh, so, for example, when we, um, let's say we're involved in a learning process and it's hard, you know, whether it's school or a training or meditation or being with a difficult situation, there can be a certain amount of pain we experience and that can, using that distinction, can lead the second arrow to be shot so it actually is our own suffering. And it can be meaningful, maybe, because we hold it in a bigger context. We have a sense this is leading somewhere. You know, of course, if we're part of a community or if we're part of a training where they say, expect to have a certain amount of suffering, it's meaningful because this is the only way you can transform something. Then it can become meaningful. Or it could be the suffering, again, the pain taken on by uh, the civil rights demonstrators could be said to be an even a certain amount of shooting the second arrow. If they, in the midst of the pain, they blame others or blame, why did, I, why did I do this, you know, or something. That can be meaningful suffering because it's in the context of, we could call it social healing or social transformation. So I think it could be individual, it could be in a family, you know, that we take on things which are painful because it's part of a bigger picture that's leading to some, something very uh, positive or beautiful. Yeah, I think probably most of what's really valuable that we do in any sphere is going to have some of that, isn't it? 
you know, whether it's uh, school or family or work or um, uh, being with friends. You know, it's a great question, really. It really helps us to see in perspective. I think this will be the last one because of time. Cindy, please. I'm reacting with the phrase, take on pain. Yeah. And I think for myself, yeah. Yeah. I can share it with them. Yeah. And in sharing it, that might help reduce their sense of isolation. Yeah. Which I think is a big part of what yeah. many of us experience. Yeah. Part of our suffering. Yeah. But I don't think I take their way away their pain. If I think that's what I'm accomplishing, I yeah. think I will fail. Yeah. And I I think it will lead perhaps for me to that, that cycle. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the, um, the comment was about the fact that uh, some of the language can be tricky or can be not really resonate so well, even some of the language I was using, like taking on the pain. So again, I, as in the phrases, I think the, the language has to resonate with oneself. So I, matter of fact, I don't like that language very well myself, <laughs> take on the pain. <laughs> Yeah, it's really about opening to the pain, or compassion literally means being with. So it's more empathic. It's about more about the empathic being with another's pain. And we're not trying to take it away. We may wish, may your suffering be transformed, and may you be free of your suffering, or may you be more at ease with the pain that is your situation, and so forth. But our motivation, we may deeply want that suffering to be there, but we can't take it away. That's where the wisdom dimension comes in, where it balances with the compassion. And yet we might, of course, we might respond in ways that could be helpful, right? But we don't, yeah, we don't so much, uh, I think it's better, I, I prefer the language of saying that we learn to be with the pain, or we're willing to be with, we're willing to share the pain of a friend or a family member. We're willing to share that. We don't, and we can watch our tendencies to not want to share it, right? And then we are there, and again, we can be, have compassionate response to make a suggestion or act in some way, but if we have to look at our motivation, and our motivation to take away the pain may be coming out of aversion and an inability to be with that pain. Yeah. So it's a rich uh, exploration, isn't it? And it's one that I, I want to encourage us to, to continue and if you, in a moment, will just have a quiet time, but how many would like to a little more actively develop compassion and look into compassion in the next week? Yeah, we've got a critical mass here. <laughs> okay, and so I'll invite you to do that again, 10 or 15 minutes with the practice a day will make an impact. If you want to do more, that's great. Uh, better to do it when your mind's somewhat quiet, maybe sit for 15 minutes, and do 15 minutes of compassion practice. You can start doing it when you're driving. All, the, all that empty space around, or empty time around red lights or waiting, you know what to do. <laughs> and, uh, and, and also see if there, I have some of, on the, on the uh, handout, I have a few suggestions about way to bring compassion into action. And so you might, you know, you might take on, you might find yourself called <laughs> to, uh, to, to do some of those actions. But it's just to think, what does compassion concretely mean for me? 
let's just sit now to close for a minute. And I'll invite us just to, for each of us, to reflect on our own intentions for the next week. Kuan Yin. Okay, I'll have to bring Kuan Yin next week as well. Before this quiet reflection, <laughs> this is Kuan Yin, who is the Bodhisattva of compassion. Uh, and I'll say more about her next time. But this is uh, I have in my kitchen. This is a reproduction of a Chinese uh, statue of Kuan Yin, who is uh, she who listens to the cries of the world, and is. Uh, an inspiration, deep inspiration, particularly in um, China, Southeast Asia, throughout uh, Central, Southeast, uh, East Asia, Tibet, and so forth, is uh, really revered uh, and almost like an archetypal force that helps people become more compassionate. And I'll say more about her uh, next week, but this is my housemate. (laughs) So... Okay, so let's just sit for a minute and invite any intentions for yourself for the next week, how you might, how you feel called to bring this into action. And if, if you don't feel so inclined, that's fine also. So at the end, we work with the very traditional ending called Dedication of Merit, that we remember that we are doing these practices and these explorations, not just for ourselves, but also for others. And may the fruits of our time together be offered beyond the walls of Spirit Rock out into the world for the benefit and the healing and a skillful response to suffering for all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.